0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to the book of 2 Samuel. And we have been going through uh, the book of Samuel over the last uh, little while. And this evening we're coming to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 13. You'll find this on page 264 in the church Bibles. Second Samuel chapter 13, and beginning our reading at verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister, whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard, morning by morning after morning? Will you not tell me?" Amnon said to him, "I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister." Jonadab said to him, "Lie down on your bed, and pretend to be ill." And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came uh, to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home uh, to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber, chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near uh, him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her "'was greater than the love with which he had loved her. "'And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. "'But she said to him, No, my brother, "'for this wrong in sending me away "'is greater than the other that you did to me. "'But he would not listen to her. "'He called the young man who served him and said, "'Put this woman out of my presence "'and bolt the door after her. "'Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves.' For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon, because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about." And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimad, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom uh, fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. You have probably heard a saying at some point similar to the one that says, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Uh, a way of trying to draw attention to how certain mannerisms, certain interests, certain behaviors can pass from a father Uh, to their son or from one generation to the next. And we can see that just this past week, someone was saying that to me. Uh, They were making the point that even when a father figure may not be very much present in the child's life, the son uh, or the child may still develop many of the mannerisms uh, and the traits of their father. There is something that uh, they start to reflect uh, many of the... uh, tendencies many of the mannerisms of their father uh, with time it just comes up and comes out of them but this evening we're seeing just how true that can be that from one generation to the next you can see certain traits certain characteristics arise in the lives of children of their fathers but it is not just the interests or the mannerisms but it's the sinful behaviors as well that can pass on, as it were, from generation to generation. And that is true in the life of David. We have been looking at the life of David in the book of Samuel for quite some time. And we have noted how David was a great man. He was described as a man after God's own heart. But David, like any one of us, is uh, capable of falling morally, and of falling very terribly. And David did. Uh, David had committed adultery with another man's wife. And David had orchestrated uh, the murder of one of his own mighty soldiers. He had Uriah the Hittite killed so that his own sin would not be exposed. David was a very selfish man. He was a very desperate man. And he was a very sinful man. But you remember how the prophet Nathan came to David and confronted him about his sin And when David was confronted about his guilt, he did confess to his wrongdoing. He admitted that he had sinned before the Lord. And you remember that the prophet even declared to him that his sins had been forgiven. But there would be consequences. The prophet Nathan told David that the Lord would raise up evil in his house. The Lord would cause all sorts of misery to come into his family. There would be all sorts of trouble that would happen as a result of David's sins. And really the rest of the book of Samuel is looking at this dark cloud that hangs over the rest of David's life. It's looking at the effects of sin and how it brought so much turmoil in this man's life and in the life of his family. And this evening we want to look at the fulfillment of that prophecy. Prophecy that fulfillment of God's uh, word of judgment that would come against David's house. And we want to see that because sin is destructive, we must depend upon God to bring a real salvation from it. And so we're looking at the fulfillment of God's word of judgment and then the fulfillment of God's word of grace. We want uh, to look at this chapter and there's so many things that we could look at. Uh, But we want to look at especially the actions of evil that were committed in the sons of David. We want to especially then zero in on the actions of uh, Absalom and the actions of Amnon and the evil uh, that they committed uh, and how it brought so much trouble uh, in the house of David. You remember that David had many wives. uh, And with those many marriages, David had many children. And now we are being introduced to many of those children, even in this chapter. One of those children was a person named Amnon. Apparently, he was the eldest of David's sons, and you would expect to be uh, the anticipated heir of David. As the firstborn, there would be a lot of attention and presumption that this will be the one to inherit the throne after David. So Amnon is not just a character uh, that appears in this event, but he is one who is uh, anticipated to be the, re- the legitimate heir to David. There were other sons that David had. There was a man named Kilion, uh, but he's never mentioned uh, much in the Bible. And so it's presumed that he may have died early on. But a third-born son is also introduced here. His name was Absalom. He was uh, a son of David, but his mother was different from Amnon. So these are both sons of David, but they have different mothers. And you can see that both of them have a succession or have a a looking towards the throne and the kingdom of David continuing. Amnon would be the eldest and the firstborn. But Absalom is behind him uh, as an anticipated uh, leader as well. And so these two characters are front and center in this chapter. But the chapter begins by saying, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and we're told that Amnon loved her. And so this uh, whole uh, event centers around this uh, infatuation, this uh, affection that Amnon has for his half-sister. Uh, one uh, who is a daughter of David, but born from a different mother. So this is the family of David that is being described here. It says that Amnon loved Tamar. That's how Amnon would describe it. He had a strong uh, affection uh, for Tamar. But as we will come to see, he never did actually love her. He had a desire for her. But those are not the same things. And that's important that we understand that. Because in a world that we live in today that talks about love of a lot, it's important that we're able to identify what is love and to differentiate it from a counterfeit. Not everything that claims to be love actually is love. Just because there's desire or affection doesn't make it love. In fact, here, Amnon had a very strong desire, but it still isn't love. Because we'll see what it ultimately leads him to doing. And what it brings out of him uh, as well. <coughs> so it describes him here as having a very strong desire for Tamar. So strong was that desire that it was actually, it was binding him. He was, he was being pulled into knots. Uh, it, it was tying him up emotionally. Uh, and it was, it was so occupying him. It was so consuming to him that it was literally making him sick. Uh, he was consumed with this passion, this desire for his half-sister. Uh, so it is describing something of the, uh, the, the intensity of his desire for her. Uh, but it says it, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Uh, there was never an occasion. There was never an opportunity for him to be alone with her. Uh, this, is, this is the daughter of the king. Uh, and no doubt she is always being accompanied with others. And so he's is, he is living with this frustration of not being able to be with one that he is strongly attracted to. Uh, and so he is becoming sick by this uh, and very frustrated as well. His cousin, a man named Jonadab, notices that something seems to be eating away at Amnon. And he comes to him and he says, what's going on? Why are you so agitated? Why are you so depressed? What's, what's bothering you? And he confesses to him. He says that he loves his half-sister. I love Tamar, Absalom's sister. And he is confessing this uh, to his uh, cousin. He's explaining to him why he is so bothered. But what uh, needs to be clear here is is that the law of God prohibited and forbids any sexual relations with one's half-sister. Um, the law is very clear. Leviticus 20 says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. Deuteronomy chapter 27 says, cursed be anyone who lies with his sister whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother and all the people shall say amen so the law was very clear that this kind of relationship was prohibited according to God's commands but Amnon doesn't show a concern about God's law here he's not he's not conflicted between his loyalty to God's word and his loyalty to his heart's desire This isn't a conflict about what is his loyalty to with respect to God or to being consistent with what he feels. This is a conflict that doesn't relate to the law of God in his purview because what he's troubled about is that Tamar is Absalom's sister. What he seems to be bothered about is, is that Absalom is involved in this, that Absalom... Is her brother. And so there's no fear of God that is coming out in Amnon here. It's not so much that he is uh, wrestling with, am I being true to God? But it is rather uh, a pragmatic thing that Absalom seems to be a barrier in my way, that I can't have Tamar because of Absalom. He seems to be uh, an obstacle. And so he is explaining this to his cousin, Jonadab. And we're told that Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he simply says that he knows how to make an opportunity come together. He knows how to bring the two of them together. And he says, just pretend you're sick. Pretend you're sick and ask the king to send his daughter to you. And then when she comes to you, you'll have an opportunity to be with her. And we're told that Amnon uh, takes this counsel and then he puts it to use. And he asks the king to send his daughter Tamar to him. And then when she comes to him to prepare food, Amnon dismisses all the servants so that they can be alone. And then he reveals his true desire to his sister. And you notice in verses 12 and following, she responds by protesting. And it's important that we hear her protest because her protest is very clear. She says to her half-brother, No, my brother. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. She says very clearly no, but she says much more than that. She is pleading with her half-brother to consider the situation in light of God. She says such a thing is not done in Israel. What makes the people of God distinct from the nations is is that they are a people living under the authority of God. They are a people who are living devoted to God's law, embracing God's will in their life. They are not just simply pursuing any kind of lifestyle, but they are people who seek first to honor God in their lives. And so she's saying this is not how God's people live. We are a people under the authority of God. We are a people who acknowledge the lordship of the Lord. And so she's telling her brother to consider God. What you're doing is foolish. And what she means by that, what she means when she says it's outrageous, it means it's closing one's mind to reason. It means to close one's mind off and not to acknowledge God in the equation, but simply to act according to impulse. That's foolishness. When we're no longer willing to think in light of God's will, but simply pursuing what we want. Her protest is further amplified by not only telling him to consider God, but by telling him to consider the consequences. Think about what will happen. Where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be considered one of the outrageous fools in all of Israel. This would have brought great shame on Tamar. Uh, to be considered one who was uh, 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 unfaithful and it would bring great shame on Amnon as well as someone who was uh, violating God's law. And so she's pleading with him to consider the consequences. She further even seems to be begging for time by saying, bring this matter up with the king uh, for he will not deny you. She's simply trying to find a way out by trying to uh, impress upon Amnon not to do this foolish thing But it tells us that Amnon would not listen to her, and being stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her against her will. But then in verse 15, it tells us, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Amnon claimed to love Tamar but now it becomes clear that he never did what he had was a consuming passion that he demanded to have uh, satisfied he was a man who was bent on his own desires and that comes out ultimately into hatred how does a person go from being affectionately drawn and captivated by someone to then being repulsed by them recoiling and not wanting nothing to do with them. How does one swing from one extreme of strong desire to strong hatred? It's because when he sees Tamar, it's now a reflection on himself. Whenever he sees Tamar now, it is exposing something that has been uncovered about himself. It's like a mirror being held up to him. If you take a mirror and you look at your own complexion and you don't like what you see, it would be like saying that I want to ban all mirrors in the house or all mirrors in public. I don't want anyone to be able to have a mirror because I don't want to be reminded of my complexion. This is what is happening here with Amnon. He's disgusted with Tamar because Tamar is showing him his own sin. Tamar here is showing him what he has become. He has become something repugnant in violating, in abusing, and raping this girl. And doing this simply to gratify himself. And so as he is seeing who he is, it makes him all the more disgusted to look at Tamar. He didn't want to be confronted with his own shortcomings as a person. And so we see here something of how we react when sin comes to the surface and we don't want to address it it is sin is either going to humble us or it's going to harden us when we see our sin it's either going to make us cry out to god for mercy or it's going to make us defiant of god altogether and when amnon here is confronted with his sin he simply wants tamar banished And you notice that when he speaks here, he doesn't even refer to her as a woman now. He's just saying, get it out of me. Get it out of my presence. And he instructs his servant to bolt the door, insinuating that this woman has made an inappropriate advance at him. He's now unsafe around her. And so it's a smearing of her own reputation. And so all of this is showing something of the the sin of this man's heart. He has done something terrible, and we see it working itself out from a strong desire that he described as love, which is ultimately worked out as hatred. So he hated her because it showed him something of himself. Tamar protested to all of this of her being sent away because it would be in even greater affliction. Because uh, now uh, she will bear the shame uh, that uh, uh, of his actions. When Tamar is cast off, she puts ashes on her head, a sign of grief and mourning, and then she tore her long robe that she was wearing. The description that is given there of Tamar wearing a robe with sleeves is actually the same description that is given of Joseph and his coat of many colors. You remember Joseph; his father gave him a coat, a robe. Of many colors. It was a sign of his father's love for him, that he enjoyed a, a position of favor. Uh, he, was, he was loved by his father. There was a dignity that he bore by having that robe. Well, Tamar had a dignity too. She was the daughter of the king. She herself enjoyed the favor and the love of her father. But when this happens to her, she tears her robe because her dignity has been tarnished she is tearing this robe because her her future is bleak because her reputation has been tarnished and so all of this ultimately leads her to fleeing to her brother absalom where she lives with him as it says as a desolate woman or as a woman who is devastated or as a woman who is terrified Why is this in the Bible? Why do we have to deal with things like this? This is in the Bible because this is reality. This is in the Bible because people deal with this. Because one in four women are sexually assaulted. Because one in six men will be two. And this is their reality. And anyone who lives in this world and says there's no good and evil, there is no real difference between right and wrong, can't speak to the horrors that happen in reality. The reason why this passage is in the Bible is because it makes us deal with real evil. You may be sitting here this evening thinking, I don't want to think about these things. I don't want to have to deal with these things. But sin is real. And evil is real. And we cannot bury our heads in the sand and ignore evil. We have to be able to address real evil if we're going to understand how to live in this world. This passage is also in the Bible, not just because evil is real, but because it shows us the devastating effects of sin. We are meant to look at this and to see where sin leads it leads to misery. Amnon's desire is not innocent. It's not neutral. It ends in Tamar being devastated. She's traumatized. That's her experience. And in this whole chapter, Tamar is the only person who doesn't do anything wrong. She obeyed her father. She obeyed and served her brother. She did nothing wrong. But wrong was done to her. She was abused. And at the end of this, she is left a devastated woman. But as one person points out, this is also in our Bibles because it gives us a voice for the victims. We were looking at Psalm 10, a psalm that talks about times of trouble, talking about how the wicked act and who are willing to live as though there is no God and there is no accountability. But here, in this passage, we are given a voice for one of the victims that go through sexual assault. Here, Amnon is willing to smear Tamar's reputation. He is willing to bury his misdeeds against her. But God knows what has happened, and he will vindicate his people. Tamar's record will be set straight. And God does defend his people. So this passage is a disturbing passage. It's not a passage that we would like to look at. And for some of us, it is more painful because it hits home. But it's reminding us of evil, that it does rise up. And this is where sin leads to more sin. It is a compounding of sin uh, in the life and the family of David. It may have seemed that Amnon loved Tamar at first. His desire was strong, but his desire was bent in on himself, and it was detached from God's truth. What's the difference between love and desire? Paul tells us that love is not concerned or occupied with one's own self-interests. It does not insist on its own way, but neither does it rejoice at wrongdoing but it rejoices in the truth. What is love? It's married with God's will. It does what is in the best interest of another. In other words, it is framed by an acknowledgement of God's reality that is not pursuing first and foremost me, but is an expression of goodwill to the another. That wasn't true in Amnon. He was a man bent in on himself, It tells us that when David heard what had happened in verse 21, that David became very angry. But you'll notice that that's all that David was. He became angry, but he couldn't go any further. No doubt David felt himself to be compromised because he saw the same sins in his own life. The very sins that he had committed seemed to be echoing themselves now in the lives of his children. David had taken Bathsheba, and now his son Amnon had taken Tamar. David himself may have found that he was not in any moral position to pronounce judgment on his own son. But as the king, he was responsible to uphold righteousness in the land. The law said that at the very least, Amnon was to be cut off from the people of Israel. That he was to be reckoned a curse for what he had done. But David can't do that. And as a result, Tamar's dignity is not vindicated. And as a result, Absalom's anger will only stir. And sin compounds again. And so we see the act of evil in Amnon and taking and forcing himself upon Tamar. But then we also see that this will compound in the life of Absalom, another evil act that will take place as well. David himself became compromised in his own ability to raise his sons. In another passage, we are told that David, in relating and dealing with another one of his sons, it says he never at any time displeased him by asking him, Why have you done so? Why have you done thus and so? David's own failings produced a weakness in David, and it produced much trouble in his family. What that impresses upon us is that if we are parents, our own integrity is of vital importance if we are going to be able to speak into the lives of our children. Gordon Ketty makes that point when he says that it is not so much what we do, but what, uh, not so much what we say, but what we do. He says, Children are far more likely to do what their parents do, whatever they may say. This is the most practical way in which the sins of the fathers become the sins of their children. So we see the evil in Amnon, we see a passivity in David in not dealing with the evil. And we see the evil in Absalom as well. It tells us that Tamar came to her brother and that she lived there, but it tells us that 2 years later Absalom was had his sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and he was going to have a celebration that having done a hard day's labor, uh, he now invites the king's court, the king's family to come and to participate. We're told that David uh, politely refuses, which is part of Absalom's plan. But he gets the son of David to come, Amnon. And that his own uh, orders, he tells his servants to strike down Amnon when he tells them. It's again an echo of David. He's plotting to kill someone, but he's going to use his servants to bring it to pass. Ultimately, he does that. And the rest of the king's family flees. Uh, and news comes back telling David that the whole, all of his sons have been killed. And again, Jonadab appears. And he assures the king that only absol- only Amnon has died. The only way that he would know that is as if he was part of the plot. And he has been part of that orchestrated uh, arrangement. But he's right. Only uh, Amnon is killed. But it is all uh, uh, an unfolding of this evil and uh, now between them. Absalom uh, uh, kills not only this man who had violated his sister, but he vi- he kills this man who may have been standing next in line to the kingship. And so Absalom here uh, kills him and then flees to his maternal grandfather, Talmeh. Absalom's rationale is not explained, whether it's out of fear or whether he is continuing his plot. But we see here the part of David's pain in all of this. His his emotional state is in turmoil, but it is showing us that it is the sins that he sees being committed by his children that causes so much uh, um, pain in David's life. So we see uh, a fulfillment of God's word of judgment. He will raise up evil in the house of David. We're seeing here, like father, like son. Amnon commits the sins of David in taking a woman by force. We see uh, the son of David, uh, Absalom, orchestrating a murder uh, by plotting the death of a son of David as well. What are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with this mess as we come to this chapter? It's a chapter about deception. It's a chapter about division in a family. It's a chapter about rape. It's a chapter about murder. This is messy stuff. What are we to make sense of it all? Ultimately, we're to fall back on the fact that God's word is certain. God's word is certain in all that it says. Just as the prophet Nathan said that he would bring judgment on David's house. That reality certainly comes to fulfillment here. But if it's certain that God's judgment is going to come to pass, then it's also certain that God's promised blessing will come to pass. Because you remember that the promise that was given to David was is that God would not cut off his steadfast love from the line of David. That his love would continue and that the offspring of David would establish his kingdom forever. That he would establish righteousness And in it, it would dwell forever. And so in a messy situation, what are the people to do? They're to realize that God's word is certain in all that it says. And to cast themselves on God ultimately to fix what a mess we see. Ultimately, there will come a son of David. Who doesn't reflect the sins of his father's. Instead, he will have the resemblance of his heavenly father. When the Lord Jesus comes into this world, he lives a life of righteousness. And he bears the penalty of his people by dying in their place. He deals with the problem of sin. But when the Lord Jesus comes into this world, he also restores dignity to those who have been sinned against. Those who feel like trash because of what has happened against them. Those who've had their robes tarnished. Jesus gives them dignity by restoring them in the sight of God, by giving them the robes of his righteousness. And so we see in Christ one who provides for our own needs by atoning for our sins, one who vindicates his people who themselves have been sinned against, But also, Christ is the one who will ultimately bring righteousness to bear in this world. That as long as sin dwells, there will be suffering. But the promise of God's word is is that Christ will return. And when he does, there will be no more sin. Because he will punish it. He will judge it. And if we are in Christ, then we can enjoy the fruit of that judgment, which is protection from misery. Sin does not have to go on forever, but rather, when Christ returns, his people will enjoy peace. David failed to establish righteousness, Christ doesn't. David failed to protect the dignity of his daughter. Christ doesn't. The sons of David failed to obey God. Christ doesn't. Christ is the answer to the mess that we see in this world. He deals with real evil, but he also brings a real salvation that we can hope in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over these uh, disturbing passages of scripture we pray lord that you would help us to see that the bible deals with real issues and we pray lord that you would grant to us a humility that does not become hardened against sin that does not recoil uh, in uh, a way that uh, distances ourselves from you but ultimately that we would look to you as the answer to our own problems Lord, we thank you that your word is certain in all that it says. May it humble us to realize that there is a judgment to come, but may it also uh, encourage us to know that our God is able to correct all that has been done wrong. Go before us now.